listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, if you have a Bible, let's open it to Mark chapter 8. And we're going to finish up chapter 8 today as we're working our ways for several months and will be for likely several more months through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to finish up chapter 8 today, bleed actually into chapter 9 and the first verse. And if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the Bibles that's in the, the rack and the chair in front of you. Underneath that chair, there's a, a Bible that um, you're welcome to use. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use that Bible, make it your own, take it home as a gift from us. And if you're not that used to looking up verses in the Bible, you can find Mark chapter 8. Specifically, we're going to be starting in verse 27 today. You can find that on page 844. And so you can can open up and follow along, and and we're going to work through this, really this turning point in the Gospel of Mark. Up to this point, we've been seeing Jesus revealing and displaying himself as the King, God in the flesh, this God-man who has come and who has authority over all demons and all sickness, and over even sin itself. And now, we're going to read about this pivot point where one of his disciples, Peter, confesses Jesus as Lord. And, and for, for the first time, really, we see sort of the veil, the spiritual blindness that we've been looking at being removed, at least in Peter's eyes, partially. And then Jesus affirming Peter's confession of who he is, and then him beginning to teach more specifically about not just who he is, but what his mission is. And so it really helps you to follow along. And just as I'm thinking about it, uh, before we, we read and pray and then work our way through it, I just noticed for some reason a bunch of soldiers here today. Um, if you maybe uh, haven't got a chance to just love on a soldier, invite him or her to lunch, um, I'd love for you to do that today. I just saw a couple young guys that got short haircuts. Uh, last week I met a couple guys that had graduated from Ranger School. I just met a guy this morning before I came into the sanctuary who's in the Ranger Battalion, has been in the Ranger Battalion for 10 or 11, 13 years. Met him and his wife, and I'm sure that means that he's been deployed numerous times. A couple weeks ago I had a lunch with a young Ranger who's been in the Battalion for about 10 years, and he said they'd been deployed 14 times to Iraq and Afghanistan. And so we're just grateful for our military, um, young lieutenants that come through and are stationed otherwise, enlisted guys who are just the backbone of the army, um, who just make things go, who, who serve us. Uh, we're very, just very grateful for you. So um, thank you for your service. And yeah, praise the Lord. Um, And, 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 and if you're a civilian, we, we love you too. I, I mean, no, I mean I'm, I'm a civilian, and so I'm, I'm glad that, you know, that occasionally some of you feed me too. And, and so, uh, but uh, praise God for, our, for our, our army and our soldiers. Um, well, let's do this. Let's read um, Mark chapter 8. And before I do that, let me just give you my two points, okay? This is the, the outline. Everything's going to hinge on this. Very simple today. But a very, very important text in Mark chapter 8. Here's the point of today's passage and the point of what we're going to look at today. One is that Jesus is the king who must go to the cross. 
Okay, so Jesus is the king who must go to the cross. And, and then the second point is that followers of Jesus must also go to the cross. So Jesus is a king, but he's a different kind of king. He's the king that goes to the cross before he goes to the crown. And likewise, followers of this king must also go to the cross. Well, let's read, starting in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then the first verse of chapter 9, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, huge words, important words. Let's pray for God to give us help as we look at it. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for little baby Michael and for the great grace of children and all the children and families that we were able to dedicate to you last week and for, for the greater reality of our family in Christ. And thank you, Lord, that we can gather in this room people from different cultures, from different ethnicities, from different backgrounds, from different parts of the country, different parts of the world, different parts of our city, different experiences. Yet, in all our diversity, we can come together to center our hearts on the one true King, Jesus. And Lord, in our diversity, there are people in this room who are followers of you, and there are people in this room who are not yet followers of you. And I pray, Lord, that you would simultaneously encourage your people, convict them and me of our of the ways which we cling to this world rather than to you. And for my friends in this room who are not yet followers of Jesus, I pray, God, by your kindness that you would let them see Jesus who is a king, 
but a king unlike any they have seen before. A king who lays down his life for all that will trust in him. I pray, Lord, that you would give us spiritual eyes to see this and that it would cause worship and joy in our hearts. I pray that you'd do this for the glory of your name and for the good and the joy of your people. And I pray it in that great name of Jesus, our King. Amen. So, the first point that I want us to look at is that Jesus is a king, but he's not like kings that, certainly the people in the Bible and obviously the kings that we think about maybe in modern day times, he's not like any other king. He's a king that must go to the cross. And so up to this point, we've been looking at how people are spiritually blind. And we looked last week at how Jesus healed this blind man and he did it with patience and really in in a progressive sort of way to display how deep human spiritual blindness is and how Jesus is kind and, and patient and is patient with us as we go from blindness to sight. And here we see finally these, one of the disciples anyway, Peter finally confessing Jesus. And it says there in, in, in verse 27, Jesus is asking them, who do people say that I am? And you know, he's kind of getting a feel for what the, the, the rumor mill is saying about him. And they say, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, others one of the prophets. And then he narrows it down in verse 29. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, I, I love Peter, just such sort of aggressive type A, sort of puppy dog. You know, he's as the other people, the other disciples are maybe hanging back, Peter rushes in, you know, I mean, you're going you're gonna to get wrong, get it wrong boldly. In this instance, he gets it right. But, you know, he just, we see him throughout the Gospels just sort of being this type A, aggressive, you know, let's go, chopping off a guy's ear at the end of the Gospels. Can't wait till we get to that. That's awesome. Jesus puts it back on. Uh, but he rightly answers here, in, in a sense, he says, you're the Christ, the Messiah, That word means this anointed one sent from heaven. And now in Mark's gospel, it doesn't give much detail, but in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 16, where it gives a little bit more detail of this situation, Matthew adds in a little bit of explanation and a little bit of detail there where where Jesus then replies to, to Peter and he says, Yes, you're right, Peter. Blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, or Simon the son of Jonah, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so what Jesus is saying there is Peter hasn't figured out that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one sent from heaven by his own intellect. He has figured it out by the gift of God who has opened his eyes to see who Jesus is. That's simultaneously humbling and encouraging. Humbling because... Spiritual sight, understanding who Jesus is, becoming a Christian, is not something that we can sort of conjure up on our own. It's a gift of God. God must give us spiritual eyes to see and understand who Jesus is. So that's humbling. But in another sense, really, it's kind of encouraging. Because, because now I know that seeing Jesus, seeing God for who He is, is, is really up to God. He must do it. It's, it's not something that I have to gin up on my own. So, so if I'm sort of, you know, dim-witted and I just can't see things, there, there's still hope for me because, because God gives the vision of who, who he is. But, but notice then that Jesus then launches in, in verse 31, to this teaching after Peter has 
rightly confessed who Jesus is, and we're going to see in a second how Peter got that right, but he's, he's still not completely understanding because he's going to get something really wrong here in just a second. But in verse 31, Jesus then begins to teach about his mission. Peter has rightly identified who he is. Now Jesus begins to speak about what he must do. And in verse 31, let's read it again. After Peter's uh, confession, he says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite title for himself, and it doesn't just mean um, uh, humanity. It's like a a human. It's not like he's just the Son of Mary. But he's he's actually referring back to an Old Testament phrase You can read Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel the prophet has this vision of the Son of Man. And in that vision that Daniel has, he's he's seeing this man from heaven, this God who has come to, to have dominion over an everlasting kingdom. And so when Jesus says and refers to himself in the Gospels as the Son of Man, he's not just speaking about his humanity. He's really looking back to this Old Testament picture of who this son of man is yes god in the flesh but this king who's come to have dominion over his kingdom and so jesus says there in verse 31 that the son of man must not will but must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days, rise again. And so commentators have written volumes on just this one verse because Jesus narrows it down. And so what Jesus is essentially saying is, is that yes, Peter, you've rightly identified me as the Christ, the the one sent from heaven, the Messiah, the anointed one come on mission for God. But now he says that he must die. So let's stop for just a second and just consider and think deeply about, because many of us have probably grown up in the Bible Belt South. Um, I grew up in the non-Bible Belt South of California. (laughs) Um, Many of you actually grew up where where people actually believe the Bible, uh, by and large. But, But have we stopped to consider... What Jesus is saying here when he says that he must die. I want to I I just delve into two thoughts. One, I'm going to make an argument, hopefully from Scripture, as to why Jesus must die. And then I want to make an argument just from sort of general logic. Okay, So the first thing I want us to look at is this argument from the Scripture of why Jesus must die. The first thing we're going to do is go, go to the Old Testament. In fact, don't flip there. We're going to have it on the screen. I want you to keep your place in Mark chapter 8 because we're going to keep reading there in a moment. But there's this verse in the Old Testament that really is the key, I think, to understanding much of what's going on in the Old Testament, much of what the Old Testament is pointing forward to. So in Exodus chapter 34, Moses is having this conversation with God, and in verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34, there's these key words, there's this really seemingly confusing and almost contradictory statement that God makes to Moses, but it's a key to understanding what God is doing in the redemption of his people. So let me read Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. It says, The Lord passed before him, meaning Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Now listen to this. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty. 
Okay, so God seems to be saying two contradictory things, that he is going to forgive the guilty, but he is going to by no means clear the guilty. And, and when you read that verse in context with the rest of the Old Testament, which is just a, a basically a case that's building that nobody is righteous. The Gentiles and the pagans are certainly unrighteous. And even God's people are unrighteous because they continue to break God's law. And so God seems to be saying two contradictory things here. He's saying that he will forgive sin, he will forgive the guilty, but he will by no means clear the guilty. So so how do these guilty people get cleared? Because they seem to just Continually messing it up, and that's the record of the rest of the Old Testament. What's going on there is that in that statement to Moses, God is pointing forward to this way that the guilty are going to get cleared. And we see that realized in the New Testament. So now let's go to Romans chapter 3. Let me read Romans chapter 3, some of the most important words in, in the New Testament. In fact, this is where Martin Luther, the great reformer, he kicked off this crazy little thing we like to call the Protestant Reformation. Um, This is the point when he was reading through Romans where he stopped and said this is the turning point of the whole Bible right here. So Martin Luther, great reformer, tacked a 95 thesis on the chapel door in Wittenberg, Germany and turned the world upside down in 1517. This passage set this thing aflame the recovery of the gospel in the church. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. He says, okay, now remember what we just read in Exodus. This is a problem, okay? The problem is is that somehow God is going to forgive iniquity, forgive transgression. He's going to forgive the guilty, but yet he is going to by no means clear the guilty. So how, are, how is the tension, how is the problem of these two things going to be solved? That's a problem. God forgives the guilty, but he by no means is going to clear the guilty. How is that statement going to be meshed together and make sense? And this is where we see the answer here in verse 21 of chapter 3 in Paul's argument. And Paul has spent the first two chapters of Romans building this argument that everybody is jacked up. Gentiles are jacked up. They've disobeyed God. God's people, the Jews, likewise have disobeyed Him. And so all of us are guilty before God. And so verse 21 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested or made known apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So what what essentially Paul is saying here is that righteousness or salvation or a, a way to make God able to clear the guilty and, and forgive sin but but not hedge on his holiness in any way. There's there's a way, there's a solution coming to this problem that we just read about. That now righteousness of God, now salvation has come and it's coming Outside of this Old Testament law that we've been reading about and we've been reciting in our catechism that the whole Old Testament points to this this law. And let me just summarize. This is a, a bit of an oversimplification, but this might be helpful for you. When you read about the law of God, especially in the Old Testament, think of it in three categories. 
that the law or this, this, this set of rules that God has given to his people and to the world to obey, it really has three purposes. One is to show us what is right to display God's holiness, this way that God's people are supposed to live. The, other, the second thing is that to show us what is wrong, what, 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 is, what is rebellious, what, is, what displeases God. And then, and then thirdly, to show us what is needed. To show us what is wrong, to show us what is right, and to show us what is needed. But notice that the law can't save. Like, it can't help us. It's just a light that turns on to show us that there's a problem, right? It's just a light that you flip on in the middle of the night, and it shows you the banana peel and the toys and all the mess that your kids did not clean up. It just, it can't actually clean up the mess. It just illuminates the mess. It shows us what's wrong. It shows us how that wrong is different from what's right, and it, and it shows us what's needed. Clean up. But it doesn't actually save. And so now Paul is going to show us what does actually save. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, so good little church kids that grow up in the Bible Belt South have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Maybe even in their self-righteousness. Maybe in their moralism. Maybe in thinking that they're better than the other kids. Or, or the person who is an obvious sinner has also fallen and fall, is, is sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. There's no distinction. In verse 24, And all who are justified are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Now listen, don't be, don't be intimidated by that word. That's a really important word, that God puts forward Jesus as a propitiation. So here's what's happening, okay? That word propitiation means a sacrifice that absorbs God's wrath and God's punishment and God's holiness and turns it into God's favor and grace. That's what that word propitiation is communicating. So, so here's what's going on. Let's stop and just think about where we are. We've got this problem in the Old Testament that mankind has fallen, but God is holy. But yet God is saying that I am going to forgive sin and iniquity, but I'm not going to clear the guilty. And so how are these fallen, guilty people going to justify themselves? Well, they can't. We can't. We can never make ourselves right enough in front of God because He's holy and we are fallen. And the solution is right here is that God solves the problem by coming to us in the form of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to obey the law, to live perfectly, and then to put forward His perfect life on the cross to absorb God's punishment for the guilty, satisfy it, extinguish it, remove it, and defeat sin and death and all of its consequences, and turn God's punishment and justice and holiness and wrath into God's favor and grace. And that, that's what this verse, that's where Martin Luther, who's reading Romans, 
is saying, oh, I'm not saved by giving to the offering to build the cathedral in Rome. I'm not saved by reciting so many such and such prayers. I'm, I'm, I'm saved by Jesus' work on the cross and trusting in that alone. And so he, he goes on, Paul. He says that God puts him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So God's not, he's not just, he's not like a, you know, a kind of a benevolent grandpa or a 42-year-old father who's maybe not as good of a disciplinarian as he should be and sort of hedges on family rules after mom goes to bed. I don't know, just a hypothetical situation. He's not the one who wears down a lot easier when the kids are fussing, notices that mom's in the other room and says, ah, all right, whatever, just, just, get, just grab it and don't tell mom that, that I let you have the candy. He's, he's not that guy. God is holy and righteous. And in forgiving people of their sin, what this verse is saying, by making people Christians, by, see, we're all guilty, we are all sinners, and by forgiving us, God is not hedging on his holiness and saying, ah, you know, you're right. That whole Old Testament thing, was, that was a little unrealistic. My holiness, your sinfulness. Ah, let's change the tune a little bit. And let's just kind of make it okay. And now it's just grace and just kind of do your best. Do your best. That's not the message of Christianity. The message is, is that God is holy and righteous and we are sinful and the way he reconciles even letting us in his presence as his children is by putting Jesus forward to be the one that withholds the standard and accepts the punishment. You've got to see that. Do you see that? So God maintains his holiness, but yet he's still gracious. All in the same time. And he does it from beginning to end. Do you see that? And then that brings us to this last little beautiful summation. It was to show in verse 26 of Romans 3. Romans 3 it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God is still holy. God is still righteous. God is still magnificent. He hasn't hedged the standard in any way, but yet he has justified through grace those whom he accounts righteous and law-abiding, not because these guilty people have figured it out or he's changed the standard, because Jesus has come and fulfilled the standard for all that would have faith in him. And so that had to happen through Jesus' real life, and real death on the cross. So back to the question, why did Jesus have to suffer and die? Because he comes as a substitute, as a sacrifice to appease the holiness of God. So do you see what's happening here? God is still holy and he's still gracious. And the law still stands, but Jesus has fulfilled it. So, so when we were reading the catechism, did that discourage anybody? Yeah, thank you for your honesty. One guy, me and that guy, we're the only two guys that are like, oh, not even a look. With, I mean, come on. We fail 
just those three commandments weekly, if not daily. So what's our hope? See, our hope is not that God will just say, ah, okay, mom's in the other room, take some candy, don't say anything. We'll just let to let you in. Our hope is that God remains holy and his holiness is satisfied through Jesus' perfect obedience. And all who have faith in Jesus get that righteousness accredited to them. So Jesus comes to us, lives the perfect life, dies on the cross, a holy, righteous life, dying on the cross, satisfying the requirements that we could never meet, but God still calls us to. Jesus' death is necessary for that. And that's what he's teaching his disciples here for the first time. So that's the scriptural argument. And quickly, just a, a logical argument. And I get this from Tim Keller's book, The King's Cross. It's a sort of brief devotional on Mark. I'd highly recommend it. It doesn't go all the way through the book of Mark, but highlights certain passages. And this particular chapter was on this, on this uh, scripture that we're looking at today, and it was very, very helpful to me. And he gives this analogy of, of a lamp. So this is an argument for why Jesus must suffer, why, why he had to go to the cross from just logic. Let's just say that there were two friends, and one friend invited the other friend over to his house to watch the Army-Navy football game. And the friend who owns the house is a Navy fan, and uh, the friend who he invited over is an Army fan. And let's just say, late in the fourth quarter, that the Army quarterback is driving for a go-ahead winning touchdown, which would mean that it would be the first time in 10 years that Army has beaten Navy. Thank you. Just a hypothetical situation. And let's say that that Army quarterback fumbles the ball in an exchange with the running back on the five-yard line. Navy recovers, sealing the defeat for the 11th straight year of those nasty, stinky, get-over-midshipmen from the Naval Academy. And Army loses for the 11th straight year. Just, again, a hypothetical situation. And then let's say that the army fan, who was a guest at the navy fan's house, grabs his lamp that just happens to be a little Naval Academy goat, and he slams it down to the ground and breaks it. Just, I didn't actually do that, by the way, if you're wondering. So now, so now there's, two, there's two, that lamp cost, you know, $100. And now we've got an issue. The guy who owns the lamp has two options. He can say to the buddy, the army fan who destroyed his $100 lamp, you owe me $100. You must pay me back. Or he could say, don't worry about it, man. It's been 11 years. (laughs) Um, Don't worry about it. I'll replace it. Or if he doesn't replace it, um, he'll just have to go without as much light in that room. Do you see that either way there's a loss? So either this guy that broke the lamp has to pay it back, or the guy whose lamp was broke either has to replace it and pay it by another one, or he has to just absorb the loss, but he now doesn't have something that he had. 
And, and so let's, 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 tr- let's now move this over to our relationship with God. Do you see that forgiveness, whatever it is, it, it's costly. It, it costs something. So God, when we, when we sin against Him, when we break our relationship with the creator of the universe, God has a couple options. He can make us pay it back, and that's what every other religion in the world says. Pay back your fallenness by doing this or that. Make yourself right. To some degree, pay back. Or God could say to us, I'll, I'll pay it back. And, and that's exactly what the cross is, friends. But there's a real cost there. God, see, God can't just say, ah, well, forget about it. There's, there's something that has been lost there. And we all understand that things are real, so they must be paid back. And so when we sin against God, there's something that has been lost. This relationship of creator and created is broken. It's not there anymore. And God comes to us because forgiveness is costly and he dies for us. And so Jesus, scripturally and just logically, we see how, how this is true that he is teaching his disciples that he must die. Now, friends, we could just say, we could, we could just say, yeah, and I'm sure there are probably some of you that are having this objection in your mind right now. Maybe, maybe you're not yet a Christian and this is the thing that's been popping in your mind. Yeah, but... But God's all-powerful. If you're saying that God is all-powerful, couldn't he just sort of make things right? Couldn't he just kind of go, poof, kind of make things right? Well, you know, God can do whatever he wants, but why hasn't God done it that way? Why has God even set up this system where there's this, where he's even allowed sin, where he's even allowed loss, where he even allowed us to break the lamp, so to speak? Why? Well, I think that if we were to read the Bible and to read it carefully, we see this picture of God, of His love and His glory being mixed together. And we see a sovereign, glorious, gracious Creator who is superintending all things for the display of His glory. And so the best answer I can give you to that question that you have, which is a valid one, friends, is why would God even allow sin? Why would He allow us to fall and why would he need to do it this way is that in his wisdom he has deemed the allowance of evil and sin and then his rescue mission to save a people for himself through his work to be a greater display of his glory do do you see that God even allowing the fall and then coming after us is 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 a greater display. It causes divergence. So now in just sort of humming along, a sort of robotic creation that, that, that never disobeys, God allows sin and evil so that He rescues it, so that to the cosmos He displays His glory. So, so God displays, He's in action. He displays His glory and it's, it's more beautiful and it's, it's more glorious. And he allows it to happen to display his glory, which, by the way, is the best thing he can do for us because when God displays his glory, it's so much more satisfying. So Jesus is the king who must go to the cross. And likewise, second point, and we end on this, followers of Jesus must also go to the cross. And that's what Jesus teaches there. Let's keep reading in Mark. Mark chapter 8. 
He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer these things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. Verse 32, and he said this plainly. And now Peter, who just got it so right, took him aside and began to rebuke him. And that word for rebuke that Peter uses is the same word that, Je- that it says that Jesus used to rebuke the, the wind and the waves chapters before. So it's not like he's pulling Jesus aside saying, are you sure about this? He's calling Jesus out. I mean, if nothing else, can we applaud his boldness? I mean, come on. I think, speaking of Martin Luther, I think he said one time, he was quoted to say, if you're going to sin, sin boldly. And, and I mean, Peter, I mean, goodness gracious, think of all that he's been through. It's just some sort of, I just respect this guy, man. I mean, he pulled Jesus aside and rebuked him. In verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked P- Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Boy, the tables have turned from, oh, you got it right, to get behind me, devil. Talk about a swing here in just the course of a few sentences. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So why is Jesus so harsh with Peter? What I think he's saying to Peter is is that you're you're, you're still on your own agenda here. You see, what Peter was wanting from Jesus was... I think probably a merely political rescuer. So, so back to the Old Testament, God has formed a nation out of one man, Abraham. And he's formed his people. Not just because he only loves the Hebrew nation or Israel or the Jews, but because through this nation, his promised chosen people in the Old Testament, he was going to work his glory and his holiness so that through them he might display his glory to all the other nations on the earth so that they would all come and see Jesus and trust in him. Much like the church, friends. That's why he's called us as a church. Not so that we can just sort of be people that have good coffee and little Bible studies and do things, padded chairs and air conditioning, songs that we like and sermons that pat us on the back. He's called us out of, his, out of darkness into his marvelous light, just like he was trying to do with the Jews in the Old Testament, so that through us, through us, he might display his glory to the nations. And so, 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 so Peter is thinking, he's still in this mindset that Jesus is going to be a merely political rescuer. So in the Old Testament, you have God's people falling into the Egyptian captivity. And there's a, there's a deliverer that comes. And then they fall into Assyrian captivity. And then Babylonian captivity. And, then, and now they're in Roman captivity. And, and God would send these deliverers to deliver God's people out of their captivity, but these momentary deliverers were pointing towards this greater delivery when Jesus, God himself, would come and rescue his people, not just from temporary situations and sin, uh, temporary situations and political difficulty, but from sin and death itself. And Peter doesn't see this just yet. And Jesus rebukes him for that. See, Peter wanted to an immediate, momentary deliverer. How might we fall into the same trap? Jesus, I'm a Christian, so give me what I need. I'm single, and I want a husband or a wife now. I want the promotion. I want the healing. I want this. I want that. We Add Jesus to our lives 
hook him onto our agenda and expect him to fulfill our desires. And Jesus is saying to us that he's a king who goes to the cross and followers of Jesus must also go to the cross and die to our agenda so that we might live to him. And he continues in verse 34, and he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross And follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Do you see the the inverse there? That when we cling to this world, when we cling to our preconceived notion of how we think God must operate, it's like we choke life to death. But when Jesus says that we we let go because we're trusting in the one who let go for us, who gave up his life for us. We, we, we now actually find our life in him as we give up our preconceived agenda. Verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with His holy angels. And then He continues this thought into verse 1 of chapter 9. And He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So so what what does that mean? Does that mean that the people that were standing there were the ones that would see the second coming of Jesus? No, I don't don't think so. Because even after Jesus' death and resurrection... Um, they were still believing this verse. And I think what, what's going on there is Jesus is speaking about maybe one of several things. We're going to look at next week when he's transfigured in glory before his disciples. I think it's speaking about the resurrection, that the kingdom of God is going to come and defeat death and sin and all of its consequences on the cross through Jesus' resurrection. And there are some that are standing there that will see the risen king who died and rose again. So, a question or two for us before we close. Do you, do you see this king who must die? And do you realize why he had to die for us? I guess my question is, have, have we taken sin that seriously? That our sin was so great and our predicament was so great that God came to die for us. Why do we talk about that all the time? Because seeing that deeper and deeper causes us to worship Jesus more and it roots His glory in our lives deeper. Christian, why do you need the gospel? Why do you need to hear that you are still given to sin? Why do we not just sort of preach healthy, happy little self-esteem things like three ways to have a better Tuesday, you know, four steps on having a, you know, whatever. Why do we go back to the gospel? Why did Spurgeon say 150 years ago that he wants to open the Bible, explain the text, and then take a hard right to the gospel Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? Because we all need to be reminded how great is our sin, but yet how greater is his love. And that causes our spirits and our minds and our hearts to be transformed as we see a God who loves us that much. Do you see that? 
And then my second question is, are you a follower of Jesus like Peter? And you are still trying to hitch your agenda on to Jesus? And are you frustrated with Jesus? Are you frustrated with Christianity? You frustrated with other Christians around you, with this church, with me, because you're continually trying to hook on your agenda to Jesus rather than realizing that just as the king went to the cross, we must go to the cross as well. How might we still need to die? Have you thought about that? How might you need to die to yourself? Maybe you're not yet a Christian and you are trusting in yourself. You're trusting in your relative righteousness. Friend, look away from yourself even now and look and see Jesus. Do you see the King, God who came in the flesh? Look to him. Turn away from trusting in yourself and have faith in Jesus. Do you need perfect faith? No. You're not saved by the strength of your faith. You're saved by the object of your faith, which is Jesus. Look to him. Friend, are you a Christian? Have you hooked an agenda onto Jesus and are you frustrated? Are you willing to die to that? Look away from yourself even now and look to the king who went to the cross and let's follow him there and truly find our life. Let's pray. Father, as we come now, help us with these things. Lord, seeing this, either for the first time or again and again and deeper and deeper in our life, is not something given to us by flesh and blood or human wisdom, but by you alone, Father. So would you give us eyes to see and a heart to believe Jesus, the King who went to the cross and died, and that we need to follow him to that place and die. The glorious news is that he did not stay dead, but he rose again in victory over sin and death and brokenness and all of its consequences, and now is able to give true life. Lord, Lord, may we see that we need to die too. But in dying, we are actually just beginning to live. Lord, would you give us, would you give us this knowledge? Would you give us this understanding? Would you give us eyes to see this? And would we worship you accordingly now? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.